Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Welcome to Hollywood and Levine. I'm Ken Levine, your podcast host. Well, CNN has these documentary series on the decades. You've probably seen them, the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, and 2000s. And starting in the 70s, they have graciously asked me to come on and give my sagacious opinions about one TV show or another. And they have used me in the 70s, 80s, 90s, 2000s. And just recently, the same folks are putting together a 12-hour documentary on movies. And they asked me again to come on and be one of the talking heads. And I just filmed that a couple of weeks ago. And so I thought, you know, I have rarely actually been on camera. Now, doing these CNN things has been great because especially since I do the episodes on television, those are the ones that get their highest ratings, so they rerun them over and over and over again. And it seems like every other weekend they're running one of these shows. And I'm getting emails all the time from people saying, hey, I saw you on CNN. And my feeling is, hey, Anytime you see me on CNN, it means it's an hour that you don't see Donald Trump. So, hey, keep showing me. But, you know, you do that for like two hours and they use 15, 20, 30 seconds. But as long as they keep replaying them, it looks like I'm on there the whole time. Anyway, so I thought I would do for this episode, uh, I would look back at all of the various times that I was actually on camera and uh, not a lot. I mean, it's one episode. It's pretty much covered in one episode, all of my uh, various television on-camera appearances, my 15 seconds of fame. So that is the topic this week on Hollywood and Levine. Well, I was first on TV when I was eight years old. On Channel 4, there was like a Crusader Rabbit cartoon show, and I got to go on that thing for like about 15 minutes. I have no recollection of it. Then I went on a local teenage dance show back in 1964 called Ninth Street West here in Los Angeles. It was at KH Day, Channel 9, and it was done in their studios. And basically, their studios, which was an old Art Deco building on Melrose Avenue, radio station was also in the building. But in terms of their TV studio, it was really <laughs> a little more than a garage. Really, it was just this this tiny studio, and a bunch of us teenagers were all herded in. Uh, I was 14 years old at the time. I I got a date 
from school and my mom had to drive us and my mom had to like drive us home. But I was on Night Street West and the guests that particular day were the Bo Brummels, which was a singing group uh, from San Francisco, I believe, Peter and Gordon, which was a British import, and a guy just starting out named Marvin Gaye. And Marvin Gaye at the time was still wearing suits and was still very slick. And then, like I said, he was very new. And so there was a segment right before he was going to sing a song. And actually, he didn't even sing it. It was all lip sync. But he was standing on this little platform and they had a bunch of kids standing around him. And I was like right up front. And it was a commercial break, and so he's waiting to go on. And I could see his hands are shaking. And I said to him, hey, man, you're great. Don't be nervous. You're fantastic. We love you. And and he smiled, and then it was time to go on, and he did, and he was terrific. And then the segment continued, and we danced to some idiotic song, and then it was the next commercial break, and I'm just standing around, And there's a tap on my shoulder, and it was Marvin Gaye who came and found me and thanked me for my vote of confidence. So that's my very cool story with Marvin Gaye. Now, there have been a couple of times, we have to flash way forward now to when I'm already writing and producing television shows, but uh, there were a couple of occasions where I got to actually act in one of my shows. These are rare occasions. 1981, it is the year of the Writers Guild strike, one of the many Writers Guild strikes. And David Isaacs and I, at the time, were working at Lorimar. We had a development deal, and so we were exclusive to Lorimar. But when we went on strike, suddenly all of the deals were off, And everybody was let out of their contracts for the duration of the strike. So we were out of work. And there was a show that had been picked up by ABC to begin that fall called Open All Night. And a very small production company, an independent production company, was producing the show. And the creators and showrunners were Tom Patchett and Jay Tarsus. Now, Tom Patchett and Jay Tarsus had been the showrunners of the Bob Newhart show for most of its run. They then became the creators and showrunners of the Tony Randall show, both of these for MTM. And we went to work. Our first staff job was with the Tony Randall show, and we were hired by Tom and Jay. So, They went to the Guild along with a couple of other small independent companies and they said, we're going to get killed if we can't write and produce shows and get shows ready for the fall, then we're going to go bankrupt. So what they proposed was this. They said, whatever the deal ultimately is, we will sign it. We will agree to whatever it is as long as you let us now at least go to work. And the Guild said, okay. And so Tom and Jay called us and said, would you guys like to write an episode of Open All Night? 
And we're like, yeah, we'll write an episode of anything. We don't care. It's like this is the only money we can make uh, during this Writers Guild strike. And like most Writers Guild strikes, it was prolonged. So we met with Tom and Jay. At the time, we couldn't cross a picket line. We couldn't even go into a studio. And they didn't have studio offices. We worked out of an apartment in North Hollywood. And we saw the pilot. And we saw that Jay was not only one of the creators and showrunners of the show, but he also was acting in it, and he was a series regular. So we said to Tom and Jay, pretty much as a goof, well, if Jay is a series regular, we want to be in the show. And they said, okay, fine, write yourself in the show. So we did. We wrote the episode, and the show, Open All Night, was about a... 24-hour convenience store like a 7-Eleven and the family that ran it. Our particular scene, David and I were two swinging lawyers trying to pick up female mud wrestlers at a mace class. Gives you kind of an idea of what that show is all about, okay? So we've got a few lines to these uh, girls, and they kept pretty much our dialogue from our first draft. So we each had about three or four lines. And I remember the woman who I was hitting on was actually Cassandra Peterson, who, for those who don't know who Cassandra Peterson is, she was also Elvira, Mistress of the Dark. She's very nicely redhead. She wasn't gothic dark like that. And so after the first day's run through... They kept all of our lines intact, and they just added one line of stage direction. And that was, the two girls get tired of these guys and flip them over their shoulders. So now, for the next three days, they had a stunt person teach them how to flip us over their shoulders, and they tried to teach us how to land. For the next three days, we were being thrown around that set. We had ace bandages and we had padding and everything. And like I said, we were just thrown around the set for three more days. And now it's Friday night. We're going to film the show. We have the dress rehearsal at 3.30. And then at the end of the dress rehearsal, we're going to have the show filming that night at 7.00. Uh, Jay Tarsus came up to me and David and said, you know, guys, I think we're going to cut the stunt. So they cut the bit where we were thrown over their shoulders. And the truth is they had no intention of doing that. This was just their way of getting back at us for wanting to be on the show. And so uh, we got to be on television. And I think I was black and blue until the next writer's guild strike. The other time that we were on a show, these are two shows that are no longer around. Uh, There was a show on ABC sometime in the late 80s called The Marshall Chronicles. And it was created and written and uh, show ran by Richie Rosenstock, who is a terrific writer. He also did the series Flying Blind. He won an Emmy on Arrested Development. He spent some time on Friends and Family Guy and Will and Grace and Happy Days. Like I said, he is a terrific writer. 
And this was his show, and it was very much like a young Woody Allen in New York, like a high school Woody Allen back before Soon Yi when people found out the real Woody Allen. And uh, so David and I wrote an episode for him. And again, we said, hey, can we be in it? I don't know why we asked to be in the show, but we did. And he said, sure. And so we were two gay lovers at a Jewish wedding because every family has one. And of course, no one in the family will acknowledge or recognize it. So that's what we were. We were two gay lawyers and had a couple of lines and one line, I'm very proud of this. One line, I had a joke and, are you ready? I had to walk, okay? I had to like actually walk and deliver a line and I got a laugh. So that is my crowning moment (laughs) in terms of acting. When I got into baseball, I started out doing radio, doing play-by-play on the radio. I was up in the stands at Dodger Stadium and I made a bunch of tapes and eventually sent them out. And I got a job with the Syracuse Chiefs. And midway through the season, I got a call from Toronto. We were the Toronto Blue Jays AAA affiliate. And they asked if I would come up and fill in and do a couple of innings on the radio broadcast. And I thought, man, great. Okay. So I went up there and and I did that. And look, who are we fooling? They did it because it was a great story. I mean, here's a guy who's a TV comedy writer for Cheers, and now he's announcing baseball. And, you know, so it was kind of a novelty. And they had me go up to Toronto and call a couple of innings of an Angel Blue Jays game. And I remember I announced the third and fourth inning on the radio, and I actually did a good job. And then I was done. And a local TV station in Toronto then wanted to interview me. And I said, yeah, okay, fine. I was done for the night. So I left, and we went off to the roof of the stadium. This was before they had Sky Dome. This was the old exhibition stadium in Toronto. And we went up to the roof, and they were interviewing me for 10, 15 minutes talking about uh, my career and how I'm balancing two things, blah, blah, blah. Meanwhile, I'm hearing, you know, cheering from the crowd and the game is going on. And when we get done, somebody from the Blue Jays comes up and says, well, they would like Ken to go on the TV broadcast and say hello to the TV guys. Okay, I'm happy to do that. So we go down to the TV booth And I meet their TV announcers, Don Chevier, who did the play-by-play, and Tony Kubek, who did the color. And uh, I I sit down, like, during a commercial, and, you know, I meet them. Nice to see you, and blah, blah, blah. And then we come on, and they introduce me, and, you know, they say who I am, and I'm the broadcaster for their AAA team, and I'm up here for the night, and I also write for Cheers and MASH and everything. And then they said, so uh, take it away. Do the play-by-play. Okay, now, I was not expecting this. And you know how you have that nightmare dream where it's like it's time for your final and you haven't gone to class and you don't know anything and your alarm didn't go off and you're late and you can't find the class? You know that dream. Well, sort of the 
sportscaster's version of that dream has to be, okay, you're sitting down, you're doing play-by-play, you have no idea what's going on. I had no idea who was up, what the score was, what inning it was. And not only was I on television in Toronto, but this was over a Canadian network. So this was being broadcast coast to coast in Canada. And I'm on the air. I I don't even know who's pitching. I know nothing. And so I'm like faking it. I'm like looking up, trying to find the scoreboard just to see what inning it is and what the score is. And a player would come up and usually you have a scorebook. So I'd be able to say, okay, here's Chili Davis. Uh, He's one for two. He flied out to right in the first inning and then he singled to left in the fourth. And he's batting 285 and he's hit safely in seven of the last nine. I knew nothing. It's like, okay, here's Chili Davis. Davis. And and I didn't know the pitcher. You know, I couldn't see the number on the front of his jersey, so I couldn't even determine that. And even if I could, I didn't have a roster, so I, I didn't know who it was. So I would have to fake it, and I would say to Tony Kubek, well, he's really got his stuff, doesn't he? And Tony would say, yeah, Dave Steeb uh, has really been working on his stuff. And I oh, okay, Dave Steeb is pitching. So that's how I faked it for an inning of play-by-play having no idea what the hell I was talking about. So that was my introduction to baseball (laughs) play-by-play. When I got a job in Baltimore in 1991, it was to do radio. And I asked them like late in the season, I said, hey, just for fun, could I do a TV game? No. (laughs) No. They did not want me doing a TV game. However, that fall, that was the year that Cheers officially went into syndication, and there was a local station in Baltimore that picked up Cheers. And they approached me and said, you know, it would really be fun for the premiere week is to have a Levine and Isaacs festival. You pick your favorite episodes and we will play two episodes each night for a week, Monday through Friday from seven to eight. And I said, okay, great. And they said, we'd also like you to intro them. So I said, okay, well, then why don't we do kind of a spoof of Masterpiece Theater? Why don't I sit wearing a smoking jacket, you know, with a fireplace roaring and uh, I'm in a big overstuffed chair and there's a little desk off to the side. And I thought what would be fun would be to have a framed photo of my partner, David, except every night there was a photo of something else. It was never actually a photo of David. It would be Alan Alda or Richard Nixon or Mighty Joe Young or Julie Newmar, you know, and I would always say, I'm Ken Levine and this is my partner, David Isaacs. I would always refer to the, to the photo. And, uh, and that was kind of fun. So I did the intros and I remember one in particular, I said, uh, it was the episode called The Big Kiss Off, which is one of my favorite Cheers episodes. 
And, you know, you come on and, you know, like TCM, you know, you give a little background on the episode and how we wrote it and why we wrote it, that sort of thing. And with this one, I said, okay, uh, this is an episode called uh, The Big Kiss Off. And uh, I don't remember it at all. I said, our names are on it, so we must have written it. But I have absolutely no recollection whatsoever of this episode. So I'm going to kind of be watching it like you for the first time. That was my intro. How these intros went over with the audience, I have no idea. Because the week that they ran, we were on the road. So I was in Kansas City and Minnesota and never got a chance to to see it. But I thought it was kind of interesting that a competing station was willing to have me on. But my own team station, no, they didn't want me. When I went to the Seattle Mariners, I did both radio and television. They did not do that many TV games, really only like about uh, 30 to 40 TV games out of a 162-game season. But it was very strange because when you're on TV doing a ball game, you're on for like about 30 seconds at the top of the broadcast. Hi, how are you? Welcome to Kansas City. It's a warm night. The Kansas City Royals have lost 9 of 10. Felix Hernandez is pitching and the starting lineups in a minute. And you're off camera. That's, that's pretty much it. So I didn't think too much of it. And after like about a month, I remember I was home and got up in the morning and needed to get some groceries or whatever. And so I just threw on a sweatshirt and flip-flops and shorts and my hair was like all over the place. And I went out to the Bellevue Mall to get whatever items I needed to get. And all of a sudden, people were coming up to me going, hey, love you on the broadcast. You know, and uh, what's wrong with the Mariners? Mariners suck. And and I'm like, people recognize me? And it was, for the first time, I realized I I can't go out looking like a a schlump. (laughs) I'm I'm an actual, quote unquote, celebrity. That was very strange. And I would go out to dinner with my wife and people would come up and want my autograph. And my wife would look at them like, are you fucking kidding? Seriously? You want this Nimrod's autograph? She could not get over the fact that I was, uh, I was famous. And then there was a, a day when uh, a friend of mine from Los Angeles came up. And so I was giving him sort of a tour of the city and we were at Pike's Marketplace. And about a block away, people in Seattle know this. I don't know if it's still there. Probably is. But there was one of those adult toy stores. And so he wanted to go into the adult toy store. Okay, we both wanted to go into the adult toy store. And we go in and we're looking at the stuff and we're holding up these items going, you know, what's an ass master and that sort of thing. And, And we're in the store for about five, six minutes. And it suddenly occurs to me, I said, um, you can stay as long as you want, but 
I, I got to get out of here. <laughs> okay. I'm on television. <laughs> I don't want people, you know, seeing me. And of course, nowadays they would take pictures of me standing there holding an ass master. So, uh, it was uh, a period of adjustment. When the 4th of July came along, we happened to be in Detroit and my partner, Dave Niehaus, great announcer, great guy. He's in the hall of fame. He passed away. I miss him every single day, but he had a tradition that on the 4th of July, he would always wear, he had this red, white, and blue blazer, looked utterly ridiculous, and he would always wear that at the top of the 4th of July telecast. So he opened the broadcast, and then I was going to come on in the fifth inning, and I asked him before the game, I said, hey, would you mind just for fun, if when I go on, that I wear your jacket as well. And he goes, yeah, sure, go ahead. Now, this is not a jacket that he wore all day. You know, this is a jacket you wear on camera, and then when the light is off, you take it off immediately because you look like an idiot. So I put on this jacket, and I do my little opening, and I, I talk about this jacket and, you know, how idiotic I look. Well... <laughs> That was the lead story on ESPN Sports Center that night. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I finally got on ESPN. At the time, we were doing Frasier, and there was an episode where Frasier won a local broadcasting award, and it's one that we made up, the CB Awards. And we had this Lucite Award, this statue that looked like the Space Needle. And so I was going to go up to Seattle and do some TV games that weekend. And so I said to the prop guy, hey, do you mind if I take a CB award up with me? And he said, yeah, go ahead. So I did. And when I opened the broadcast, I was holding the CB award and I thanked everybody in Seattle for giving me this award, how touched I was. I got tons of letters from people congratulating me on winning the CB Award. Okay, so after three years of the Mariners, I then moved south and did games for the San Diego Padres. Same thing, I did radio and television. And television, it was very bizarre because my partner was Hall of Famer Jerry Coleman. And Jerry Coleman, great guy, but not the best play-by-play announcer. I think even his fans in San Diego would agree to that. So what they did was they said, we'll have Jerry doing the play-by-play and you do the analysis. And I'm thinking, how bass-ackwards is this? Because Jerry is a former player and really knows the game, I don't know the game. I mean, I, I know what I know, but certainly Jerry Coleman has forgotten more about baseball than I'll ever know. And yet I'm a way better play-by-play guy than, than Jerry was. So we did this for about a week, and my analysis was this. So, Jerry, uh, when you played second, uh, how would you have played that particular ball? And he would explain it, and I go, okay. So, Jerry, 
uh, when you were playing and a pitcher was crowding you inside, how would you handle it? And then he would answer it. So this went on, like I said, for about a week until we finally got a memo. And they said, hey, you know what might be good? What if we flipped it and had Ken do the play-by-play and Jerry do the analysis? Oh, and that's pretty much what we did. The only time I've ever gotten in trouble announcing baseball play-by-play was in San Diego. And it was as a result of a TV game. We were in Atlanta. And it was August. It was hot. It was miserable. I mean, if you know hot Atlanta in the summer, you know what I'm talking about. And when you go to commercial break, you then come back and they usually have some shot of the stadium, you know, people eating ice cream or whatever. And you come back on the air and you generally have to comment on what you see. It's like, hi, welcome back to Atlanta. Uh, boy, it's a hot day, whatever. So we do this. They come back from commercial and there are two guys sitting alone in a section way the hell out in right field, uh, a white guy and a black guy, and they both have towels over their heads to basically shield themselves from the sun. And so that's what pops up on the screen. And I look at it and I go, wow, looks like the OPEC convention is in town. Well, there was an editorial in the paper the next day uh, denouncing me for that. Now, I I admit, not the smartest thing to say, but still, that, that caused quite an uproar. My other memory with doing television with the Padres was the end of the season, I forget which year, I think 96, I don't know. And we were at Dodger Stadium and we were fighting the Dodgers for the division championship. And the Padres won that last day of the year. And I was assigned to go down to the clubhouse and do the interviews, do the player interviews. So I'm in my KFMB blue blazer and, you know, my gray slacks and, you know, my tie and everything. And and I'm in there and and just, you know, squirting me, blasting me with champagne. And I'm trying to interview all these players. And you've seen those things a million times. But when it was over, I then had to get into my car and drive home. And I thought to myself, if I'm stopped by a cop, I mean, how do I explain this? Because you could smell, I reek, you could smell me a half a block away. And I was just very fortunate that I was not pulled over that afternoon. Then uh, my last baseball announcing on TV came in 2007 when I would fill in on the radio side for Dave Niehaus a couple of times a year. And I went up to Seattle to fill in for him one day. And the TV guy, Dave Sims, came down with laryngitis. So they said, well, would you do TV? I said, yeah, I got to go and buy a tie. I wasn't expecting to do TV. And so I 
I had to borrow a jacket from somebody and I went and bought a tie. And so I'm doing the game. Now, I had not done a television game in, oh, God, uh, <laughs> at this point, maybe 10 years, maybe 10, 9, 11, something like that. Long time. My first half inning, there is this insane play where players are running to one base and then running to another and then one player is caught between bases and they're throwing and then they drop the ball and the player goes to third and then someone's trying to go home and they throw home and then and there's three players on third base it was just this crazy play umpires are signaling out then no no safe and this wild ass play and i'm thinking great i haven't done this in 10 years and within 10 minutes this is what i got to do and amazingly, I got it right, and and it was on Sports Center, and that was terrific. And a friend of mine was air checking it and recording it, and he said, "Hey, let me put that up on on YouTube." And I said, "Okay, that's great." Oh wait, wait, that thing I've been saying my whole life: this broadcast is protected under broadcasting rights and may not be used. Da, 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 da. So I asked the Mariners. I said, "Is it okay if my friend puts this?" up on YouTube. I'm really kind of proud of it. And they said, sure. And he did. He put it up on YouTube and Major League Baseball flagged it in like about four hours and it has never been seen since. Oh, wait, I lied. That was not my last baseball experience on TV. I, I think I probably just repressed this, but I filled in when I was doing Dodger Talk. This was like 2010, I believe. Uh, I got to fill in and do a TV spring training game when they were in Arizona. And at the time, the Dodgers kind of farmed out the production to some cheesy local company. And there were only like so many cameras and we didn't have graphics and I didn't have a stage manager and, and all like that. And wouldn't you know, that particular game was picked up by the MLB network. So now I'm on coast to coast calling this game. And it was very early in spring training. So early that each team had like 60 players on their roster. And there were like three players that all had the same number. <laughs> it was like insane. And also, early on in the spring, what happens is all of the regulars play for two or three innings, and then they go away, and then all of these minor leaguers and hopefuls now start taking their places, and uh, it's like, I have no idea who any of these people are. It was just a nightmare. I remember at one point, the camera was on, we were playing the Arizona Diamondbacks, and the camera showed the Arizona Diamondback dugout. And it was like a thousand clowns stuck in a Volkswagen. Okay, it was just like packed. There was like way too many guys. They were just slamming up against each other. And I said, every one of those players will get into this game at some point. And that's pretty much what happened. And by the last three innings, it, it was just insane. I knew nothing about any of these players. I didn't even know the names of a lot of these players. And so I would just goof with it. And, you know, there's a fly ball to right field, and Joe DiMaggio makes the catch. 
or there's a drive to left and unidentified left fielder makes the catch. I was just having fun with this because, you know, what could I do? My analyst was Steve Lyons, and he said afterwards, he says, this is the hardest broadcast I've ever had to do. He says, I, I, like you, I don't know any of these people. I don't know what I could possibly offer. So I kind of I got through that broadcast, and like I said, uh, it, it was pretty much a travesty. And John Miller, who was my partner in Baltimore and later did ESPN Sunday night games and is now the voice of the Giants, uh, called me that night. He said, I was watching, and uh, that was very entertaining. You really did a nice job of handling that. Okay, well, I had a warm and fuzzy feeling until later on that night when I made the mistake of going online and seeing if anyone from any blog or any website made any kind of comment on the game. Well, in the Arizona Diamondback blogs, they just buried me. They just crushed me. Who the fuck is this guy? He doesn't know any of the players. Uh, how did they let this guy on the air? This was the worst broadcast ever. I can't believe that this guy has a career. Uh, just buried me. So that was my last baseball experience. Then I got that call from CNN, like I said, to come and do the 70s. And uh, and they liked what I said, so they had me do the 80s. The 80s were kind of fun because that was cheers. You know, and I go down there and I get all made up and, you know, I'm wearing a suit and that, that sort of thing. And the guy's asking me all these questions about cheers, which I'm answering. And after about an hour, the producer yells out at him, Jesus Christ, ask him something else. So then he started asking me about all these other shows in the 80s. What did I think of, you know, Pee Wee's Playhouse and Dallas and Family Ties and Cosby and all these other shows. So I'm just, I'm answering these questions. Uh, I'm not prepared for any of this. And then when I saw the actual show, and they're using my comments on Pee Wee's Playhouse and Dallas. And I'm like, what? <laughs> I don't even remember saying any of these things. Yeah, it's my voice. But, you know, I, I figure, okay, they're going to use me for, you know, two, three sound bites for cheers and that's it. So for whatever reason, they like me. They use me on the 80s, 90s, uh, 2000s. And then, like I said, just recently, I recorded a thing for their movie documentary, that will come on. I'm not sure when, come on. Usually months after I record those things. And then my final TV appearance so far is uh, I did a blog post praising Neil Simon and I got a call from Turner Classic Movies that they wanted to do their Friday night spotlight a month-long salute to Neil Simon, and they were looking for someone to host it. And they read my blog post, and they knew of my background. And so they said, do you want to host the Neil Simon Festival? And I was like, yeah, yeah sure, that, that sounds like fun. So 
they sent me the movies. I wrote up the intros and outros. They flew me to Atlanta. They took me to some studio in the middle of nowhere, in the suburbs somewhere. I have no idea where we were. And I'm on the set, and they have a teleprompter. I'd never used a teleprompter before. And I figure, you know what? As long as I can read it, how bad can it be? Because, number one, I wrote the <laughs> the copy, so I'm somewhat familiar with it. And I know it's sort of in the you know style of my speaking voice. And the other thing is, well, I'm used to radio where I'm used to reading copy. So it should be no problem. And they put me on this set. It's like this weird blue background. And there was a camera. And the uh, teleprompter is right in front of the lens of the camera. And I'm looking at it and I'm going, oh, okay, I can read that. This is going to be fine. And then they said, okay, now to start, what we're going to do is pull back and have a wide shot and then we will slowly come in eventually to a, a close-up. And I, you know, okay. And so the camera goes way back and so does the teleprompter. And from its starting position, the teleprompter is a postage stamp. It's like I can't read anything. So now I'm having to try to remember what it was I said. And and I just start talking as the camera is slowly pushing in. And eventually I can read the teleprompter and I have to sort of finesse what I'm saying and blend it into the copy and get back into the actual script. That was really strange. And the other strange thing is they wanted to do it in in two parts for the intros. And part one is the camera pushing in on me. And then at some point, they wanted me to turn to the left and there was like another camera. And that just looks so awkward doing that. It's like, why am I turning to this this other camera? And I cringe every time I see those things. But I will say that after mm, two or three, maybe four, I actually kind of figured out how to deal with the teleprompter and, and it was fine. But, you know, look, I'm very aware of the fact that, you know, there's a whole crew that's standing there. You know, if if I'm doing radio production and it's just me and a microphone in a studio and I screw up and I want to do another take, so what? I just do another take. But if I screw up and there's 15 people, and camera guy and the sound guy and everybody else, then then I'm screwing them up. And and these guys are going, who the hell is this idiot? And I'm never going to get home for dinner because of this clown. So I went out of my way to try to get it on the first or second take and also be very self-deprecating when I didn't. So at least I could get a laugh out of these guys. 
by going, Jesus Christ, this guy is terrible. And, uh, and I would get laughs and in some cases applause. But I think YouTube has some of my intros and outros. Somebody posted them. I haven't looked at them. Like I said, every time I have to like make that turn, it just uh, makes me look like an idiot. So ending on makes me look like an idiot. We come to the end of my on-camera career. But it really is kind of fun to do occasionally. And like I said, as long as I'm on CNN, Donald Trump is not. And that will do it for this edition of Hollywood and Levine. Our thanks, as always, to Adam and Susie Meister-Butler and to Howard Hoffman. Follow me on Twitter, at Ken Levine. Also, Instagram, Hollywood and Levine. If you want to get in touch with me to offer me any, you know, TV on-camera gigs, well, you can just go to HollywoodLevine at Outlook.com. That's HollywoodLevine at Outlook.com. Uh, I would sure love a five-star review and rating for reasons I don't know, but I, I need those things. And I will talk to you next week. Thanks so much for listening and not having to watch. Bye-bye.